You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Uh, the longest single speech in the book uh, of Acts, it, his statement takes up virtually all of chapter 7. Uh, and because of its length, we're, we're not able to read the whole thing. Uh, I hope some of you, I, I sent an email out yesterday morning, I hope some of you saw that and were able to read um, his, uh, his statement uh, before to this morning. If you haven't, I would encourage you to read it later today. It is, uh, it's, it's, an, uh, it's, it's a beautiful uh, statement and uh, it needs to be read. Um, I will... Uh, touch on its main points, its two main points uh, in in our sermon today. What we are going to do is read the the end of his statement. Um, I don't think it was actually the end. I think he was interrupted. Uh, You know, he was rushed on uh, by a mob. I'm not sure he was was finished with his statement. But anyway, we will read uh, the, the end up to the point he was he was interrupted, and then we will read the aftermath uh, of it. Uh, the text is Acts chapter seven, starting at verse forty-eight, uh, going through Acts chapter eight, verse three. It's printed in the bulletin for you if uh, if you don't have a Bible with you. And I'm going to ask you if you're able uh, and and comfortable to stand to please stand for the reading of God's word. God's word. And, and remember, we're coming into the, you know, Stephen is speaking, and he's, he's beginning the wrap up, and he says, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we uh, open his word. Lord, your word is truly a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Please give us grace to receive your truth in faith and in love. And please give us the strength to follow on the path that you have set before us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, this last week, we saw the downfall of two Silicon Valley superstars, uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Sam Bankman-Fried. Their companies, uh, Theranos uh, for Elizabeth Holmes and FTX uh, for Sam Bankman-Fried, were on paper worth billions. Those companies had gone viral in the marketplace, touted by celebrities like Bill Clinton and Henry Kissinger, uh, Rupert Murdoch, Tom Brady, Larry David, Steph Curry. But they imploded. Why? Why did those companies implode? Because at the center of those businesses was a lie. Their story was simply not true. Which may cause some of you to ask the question, well then, how come Christianity hasn't imploded? How is it that a movement started 2,000 years ago by about 120 people after their leader had been executed uh, is still growing uh, and and still achieving multinational success at levels uh, like no, uh, nothing, Uh, in history has ever uh, achieved before or since. Uh, And the answer, of course, is that at the center of Christianity is not a lie, but the truth, right? The story it tells is true. And not only is it true, the, the the story enables the people who embrace it, who who enter into it, who love it, who trust it. Uh, It enables them to make sense of a difficult world, to rise above their circumstances, even the worst of their circumstances, to rise above their guilt, to rise above their shame, to rise above even their dying, and to live deeply loving, helping, self-giving, and meaningful lives without fear. It's no wonder Christianity is exploding and not imploding. This text, focusing as it does on Stephen, identifies three power sources for a Christian. Three power sources that Stephen drew on, that you and I as Christians draw on, for facing life and death. First, power comes from being full of the Holy Spirit as opposed to resisting the Holy Spirit. 
Second, power comes from the solid reality of the unseen world. And then third and finally, power comes from the reality that God is going to accomplish His purposes in your living and your dying. So let's look at those three power sources. First, the power to face life and death comes from being full of the Holy Spirit as opposed to resisting the Holy Spirit. There really are just two kinds of people. There are those that are full of the Holy Spirit and those that are resisting the Holy Spirit. And Both are on display here. Stephen is described here once more at verse 55. It's not the first time, but we see it in verse 55 as being full of the Holy Spirit. See that? Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen himself describes those who oppose him and oppose the message of Christianity in verse 51 as people who always resist the Holy Spirit. So let's focus on that group for first for a second. The, these people who always resist the Holy Spirit. What are the distinguishing marks of a Holy Spirit resisting person? Well, as we know from the build-up to this part of the story, we, as we've seen these uh, religious and political leaders uh, lining up against Stephen, we, we've seen that they tend to be self-concerned. They tend to be self-protective. They tend to be protective of their own positions, jealous of of anyone who would threaten their positions. If a person is a Holy Spirit-resistant person and he is also, or she is also religious, uh, they tend to religiously focus on the externals, right? They'll go through the religious motions, but internally there isn't much there. Their heart, uh, what really matters to them, is far from God. These are the kinds of people that Jesus confronted all of the time in in the strongest of terms, right? Um, We we might call them hypocrites. Um, And because their lives really are built on their performance, their position, uh, their reputations, when those things are threatened, they lash out. Holy Spirit-resistant people tend to be angry people. Uh, And boy, you see the anger on display here, right? These these religious and political leaders completely lost it, it in the face of Stephen's defense and, you know, and it's worth I mean, it's pausing for a second and, and looking into your own life, and because uh, I know it's true in my life. If, you, you know, where we get angry, where we rage, you know, at those points in our lives where we might fly into a fit of rage, you know, that's, that, that is a signal that something is spiritually off. That that rage comes from a place, and it's usually a place... That, that, that where an idol has, has arisen, right? You're leaning your life on an idol rather than Jesus. And, and that idol is teetering. The idol is threatened. 
and, and very often we, we our, our response is 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 fear and anger. It's a good barometer, good spiritual barometer. Holy Spirit resisting people also resist not just the Spirit but truth, right? They suppress what they don't want to hear. Paul talked about that in in Romans one as maybe one of the most brilliant analysis of of uh, of of a life of lives lived apart from God, and and one of the things Paul identifies that that people do who are resisting the Holy Spirit is that they resist the truth. They actually suppress the truth. Um, and, 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 And we get almost, we get a very... You know, Paul says it in Romans 1. We get, a, we get an illustration of it here in Acts chapter 7. It's, and it's, it would be comical, almost comical if it wasn't so tragic, right? What do they do? Verse 57, it says they cry out in a loud voice and stop their ears. Now, what does that remind you of? Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, kids who don't want to hear the lecture from mom, right? Right? You, you stop your ears and you make a loud vo- noise so you don't hear it. That's in effect what they were doing as they rushed on Stephen, crying out in a loud voice, stopping their ears. And if you suppress the truth long enough, uh, as Roman 1 tells us, you ultimately become and increasingly become irrational. Right, because you're distancing yourself from the source of reason, who, who is God, and you, you end up being irrational. You end up doing things that don't make sense. They, they don't even make sense in your own mind. You, what you, you end up rationalizing behavior in yourself that you don't tolerate, that you reject in others. Right? Think about these religious and political leaders. These were the upstanding citizens of the day. They were outwardly very moral, good people. And yet what do they do? They become a mob and kill an innocent man, but worse, think that it's a good thing. See? There's, as, the, as, as they resist the Holy Spirit, they resist truth, and they, and they start becoming ir- irrational. So what is a, let's flip it then. What does a person the person look like who is full of the Holy Spirit. Well, then all we really have to do here is look at Stephen, right? Uh, and it's, and it's, a, it's a remarkable portrait. Um, in a place we didn't read, right at the beginning of Acts 7, at verse 1, he opens up his statement by addressing his soon-to-be killers as brothers and fathers. He's, this is a kind man. This is a respectful man. Um, and as a Holy Spirit-filled person, Stephen cares enough about other people, and even those who oppose him, to give them the truth. You know, I think a lot of people think being a Christian is about being a nice person. You know, Jesus didn't die to make nice people. Um, we are generally nice. But it's, you know, it's nice sometimes we translate it to meaning, you know, tolerant. Meaning, ah, I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to rock the boat. 
uh, but no, Stephen cared enough about these people to tell them the truth. And he tells them the truth boldly. He tells it the truth clearly. But notice that, that being a Holy Spirit person goes beyond just being respectful, beyond truth-telling. A Holy Spirit-filled person actually loves even his enemies. A Holy Spirit-filled person loves other people, loves his enemies, and prays for them. You know, Jesus' call on you, Jesus' call on you and me to follow him in his suffering and in his dying. Some of you may have wondered about that. You know, if Jesus died for me, if, if his death was really substitutionary, why, why do I have to follow him in it? Why do, I have to, why do I have to deny myself? Why do I have to suffer? Why do I have to die if Jesus did it for me? Well, look, at Jesus' call for you to follow him in his suffering and dying is not a call on you to pay for your sins the way Jesus paid for them, but it's a call on you to love the way he loved. And that's what Stephen did. And that's what we are called to do. To love the way Jesus loved. Verse 60, on his knees, being pelted by stones, he prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's it's remarkable, isn't it? You know, at just the moment that you'd think he would be breathing out vengeance, he would be breathing out condemnation, he would be breathing out hatred. What is he breathing out? He's breathing out grace, he's breathing out mercy, he's breathing out salvation, he's breathing out love. And finally... It doesn't. I can't find the proof text. You just have to read it to see that there isn't a hint of fear in Stephen at all, is there? A Holy Spirit-filled person is not a fearful person. He's not afraid of other people. He's not afraid of what people can do to him or her. Not afraid even of death. Stephen was remarkably courageous. So... I ask you, which kind of person is more attractive? Maybe more importantly, what kind of person is going to have a lasting impact on other people? What kind of person is going to make his mark in history? The Holy Spirit resisting people? You know, sort of curved in on themselves, protecting their positions, lashing out in anger, increasingly irrational or Holy Spirit-filled people that look a lot like Jesus, that love like Jesus. What is it that allowed Stephen to be so much like Jesus when it would have been so easy to not be like Jesus? Well, first, we know it's because he was full of the Holy Spirit, but there was something else going on too, and that gets us to the second point. The second power source, right? Power to face life and death comes from the solid reality, the solid reality of the unseen world. 
you know, just before the mob stoned him, we are told that verses 55 and 56 that Stephen was somehow supernaturally enabled to see uh, between the dimensions, right? He saw into uh, the dimension where heaven is. What did he see? Well, saw Jesus, who he calls the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. Now let's unpack that for a minute. If you saw Jesus, what what does that mean? It means Jesus is alive. Right? He was crucified. He died, was buried. Stephen lived with the apostles, worked with the apostles. They saw that. They saw him killed, buried, uh, and risen. Right? And so now he's alive in a body, in his body, uh, in heaven. Uh, he is also what Stephen called him, the son of man. That always confused me when I was a kid. Because I thought my parents were always trying to teach me that Jesus was the son of God. And then I would go to church and the guys were always saying, hey, he's the son of man. I'm, going, I'm missing something here. Um, the, the son of man, which happened to be Jesus' favorite title for himself it, we you know we recently went through Daniel and, and if you were here for that you know that that comes from the book of Daniel Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel saw this vision of one like a son of man which which means essentially one like a human being um, uh, you know um, 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 c- c- approaching the ancient of days God the Father and, and, and receiving from the ancient of days an eternal dominion, glory, and kingdom so that the whole world would serve him. So when Stephen gets this opportunity to look into heaven, he doesn't just see Jesus. He sees King Jesus. Right? And I know for those of you who may not be Christians here, that probably rubs you the wrong way. But that is the essence of the Christian message, right? That Jesus died for our sins, was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And that therefore, because of that, he's been enthroned in heaven as the king of the world. So that in the midst of all of today's technological advancements, in the midst of all of today's craziness and suffering and futility, in all of today's political pressures uh, and wars and famines, there is yet a king. And he is enthroned in heaven. And he is building his kingdom on earth right now through his people, through you. And one day, that king is going to return to his realm here where he will reign forever and ever. And all things will be made right. All sin, all injustice, all unfairness will be judged and eliminated and death will be no more. That's the essence of the Christian message. The gospel is not good advice, friends. It's good news. Stephen also saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, 
You know, that's not what we would have expected him to see, right? Because we say the Apostles' Creed, right? What do we say in the Apostles' Creed? That Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Communicating by his sitting that his work is finished. And and in one very important sense, it is, right? It is complete. Jesus' work was finished at the cross and the empty tomb. There is nothing more to do to save his people. But in another sense, of course, Jesus is still working. I take his standing here to be a standing of acknowledgement. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew 10, 32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Stephen is acknowledging Jesus before men. And the heavens open up and he gets to see Jesus acknowledging him before God the Father. Can you imagine that conversation? You know, what, what's Jesus saying to the Father as he's standing next to the Father, acknowledging Stephen? Father, that's, there he is, that's my Stephen. Right? He's, he's the one I died for. All his sins have been forgiven, Father, by my obedience and covered by my blood. Let's welcome him into our glory. Stephen got to see that. Christian friends, the power to live fearlessly and and to love and forgive ferociously uh, comes from that reality, from the solid reality of that unseen world that Stephen saw. That world has to be more real to us than the world we see. The invisible world needs to be more real to us than the visible world is. And in fact, in point of fact, it probably is. It almost certainly is more real, more solid, more substantial, more glorious. I always loved that image. I remember when I was much younger and reading... um, C.S. Lewis's great divorce for the first time. And, you know, that fantasy where, where people come, go from earth to heaven on a bus. And, and the, the, the closer they get to heaven, the more ghostly they appear. It's not that they're changing. It's just that heaven is so real that they, that they appear increasingly unreal. And they get out and they walk on, the, and they can't even walk on the grass because the grass hurts. Because it's so real. It's so hard against uh, their, their feet. It's, it's, it's Lewis's brilliant way of just talking about the, you know, the reality, the solid reality of what we don't see every day. Okay? But how do we, do, how do we get there? How, do, how does that become a reality to us so that it really impacts the way we, we, we face life and death? I... I was trying to imagine Stephen this week uh, as I was meditating on this event and thinking about what it would be like to be stoned to death. And as I was thinking about that, I remembered that amazing short story by Shirley Jackson uh, called The Lottery. (laughs) 
and and there was a there was a movie made of it, short movie because it's a short story, made about about of the of the book, almost follows the book exactly, made in 1969. And I actually read the story when I, as I thought it, remembered it, I read this, I went back, found the book, read the story, and then watched the movie. The movie is only like twelve minutes. Um, and um, that that movie, if you know the story, right, ends with um, a very brutal and very personal stoning, and it just it just, it's it's gut wrenching. And so I watched it uh, to, to again. Can I recapture what what Stephen must have gone through? And I was thinking, you know. When, when people are rushing at you, holding stones and throwing stones, which will in a few moments kill you, I, you, you know, I can't imagine a more, you know, being in a situation where the visible world is more all-encompassing than right at that moment, right? Because the visible, what are, you, what are you seeing? You're seeing people running at you, throwing rocks at you, and you're getting hit hit by those rocks. Um, but you see, the, what Stephen was given this, this vision into heaven um, and, and he saw the unseen world and the reality of that unseen world for Stephen even overwhelmed the, the solidness of the rocks that were smashing him in the face. He had just seen Jesus Christ acknowledging him to the Ancient of Days. Right? That empowered him to, to face a, the stoning the way he did. Um, it was that, that reality was even more real to him than the stones hitting him uh, in the face. Um, That's a that's a huge power source, right? And and I and I think about you, those of you here who aren't Christians. When you're facing life and death, right? When you're facing the inevitable difficulties of life, when you're facing your your certain dying, uh, where do you go to for hope? Where do you go to for confidence? What what do you do to address your fear? You know, it's like you're a kid running a race or participating in 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 some athletic event, and you look up to, to the stands to see if your mom and da- or dad is or wa- are watching you, right? Rooting for you, supporting you. But when you look around, there's nobody there. There's nobody in the stands. Parents aren't there. Yeah. How how crushing. Is that right? How lonely is that? How disheartening is is that? Right? What does it matter what I do? What does it matter if I win or lose? What does it matter if I'm even in this stupid race? Nobody's watching. Nobody cares. Friends, God is there. God is watching. And God cares. Only the crucified and risen Lord Jesus 
can give your life the the moral structure and the accountability and the hope and the love that you need, that your heart needs to face the hard realities of life and death. So I get back to my question. How do you get there? How do you do this? Because for the most part, I, I will admit, the visible world is what's running on IMAX in my life. Right? The throne room of heaven is like, for me, it's like an old faded black and white photograph next to the IMAX of the visible world. All of you guys staring at me. How do do we flip that? How can can I make the the invisible world run on IMAX? Um, I, I wish I could open heaven. I I can't open heaven for myself. I can't open it for you. But what you and I can do is use what God has given to us. And we can read and meditate on his word. And as we read and meditate on his word, that word, which became flesh in Jesus Christ, becomes enfleshed in us. That that word becomes more and more real to us. Jesus becomes more and more real to us. What I've been doing in my own devotions is reading the scriptures and then, and then taking the time to ask myself a question like, if what I just read is really true, what difference should that make today? What, how should that change the way I live today? How should that affect my attitudes? How should that affect my actions at work, at home, at school? This is something we need to do. We need, and we need to do, you know, we need to encourage each other in this discipline of reading and meditating on his word so that Jesus becomes uh, as real to us as he was to Stephen, Right? Finally, third, power to face life and death comes from the uh, reality that God, the sovereign God, is going to accomplish his purposes. And that's a good thing because his purposes are always, as it says in the New Testament, I forget where, uh, his purposes are always good, pleasing, and perfect. They're good, pleasing, and perfect for us. So the sovereign God is going to see to it that his purposes will be accomplished, which are always good, pleasing, and perfect for us in not only our living, but also in our dying. Here's where I I told you I would summarize essentially the two main points of Stephen's defense statement. Um, And... Right. First charge was that he spoke against the temple, and so in answer to that charge, Peter says, or excuse me, Stephen says, uh, "Let me let me take you on a survey of Israel's history." And he 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 goes this long survey of Israel's history and concludes, "Guys, God never needed a temple." Yes, we have one. Yes, <laughs> it's in accordance with 
God's law. But it's not needed. It's not necessary. Remember, God met Abraham in Iraq. God was with Joseph in Egypt. God confronted Moses in the wilderness of Saudi Arabia. And from the burning bush converted the the desert sand around that burning bush to holy ground. He didn't need a temple. And then he quotes Isaiah. We read read him quoting Isaiah. Uh, God, you know, God made the heavens and the earth. The heavens are his throne. The, The earth is his footstool. He doesn't dwell in buildings made by human hands. So that's his first sort of response to the first, that's his response to the first charge. The second charge was that he spoke against Moses and the law. And in in response to that, Stephen says in effect, and we've read a lot of it, uh, it, which comes at the end of his statement, that, uh, listen, you don't keep the law. Our ancestors didn't keep the law. We can't keep the law. They disobeyed the law before Moses even had time to get down the mountain with the law. Right? So so he goes through this whole, again, another whole survey of how we have not, you, you know, our ancestors never kept the law. You're not keeping the law. And one of the main ways we didn't keep the law and we disobeyed God is that all through our history, we pushed away, we rejected, we persecuted the prophets that God sent us who were promising that one day God would send the righteous one. That's how he refers to Jesus. It's a very rare reference to Jesus as the righteous one, but it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful title. Um, that, uh, and, and Moses especially. Moses was the, a, a prophet who said, listen, one day... God is going to send a prophet like me, only much greater. And he's going to be the righteous one. And he, as the righteous one, he will obey the law. He will satisfy the law for us. And what did we do to those people? He says, we, we rejected all of them. And he says, and now guys, you're doing the same thing our ancestors did. Now the, the righteous one has come, and just like you rejected all the prophets, now you've rejected the righteous one. So who's, who's speaking against Moses and the law? Not me, says Stephen, but you. You. Because you've rejected his righteous one. What I want you to see here as we close up in that defense statement, two things. First of all, Stephen laid the theological foundation for the global missions of the church. The global mission of the church, right? He laid the... This statement was the theological foundation for the global mission of the church. How did he do that? He untethered Christianity from the temple in Jerusalem. Reminded us that God is not confined. That God is on the loose. That God can be met anywhere by any body because the meeting place for humans and God is now what? Jesus. Jesus is the replacement. He's the, right, he is what obsoleted the, obsoleted the temple. Jesus. 
We don't meet him in any particular God, in any particular place, any particular country, among any political ethnic group, among in any particular building. We meet him in Jesus. So, in other words, in his living, okay, talking about our living and dying, in Stephen's living, he gave the church the theology it needed to go out into the world with the good news. That's a pretty significant accomplishment. But notice something else. In his dying, in Stephen's dying, Stephen actually sent the church out. Right? He, he wasn't just some removed academic giving us the theological basis for missions. No, by his dying, he actually sent the church out. Acts 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul, it's that, that chilling sentence, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of where? Judea and Samaria. Does that ring a bell? Remember what Jesus said uh, in Act, to the apostles in Acts 1, verse 8? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Okay, check that one off. But they have, they've, they've been stuck in Jerusalem. They haven't moved out. And God, in his eternal purposes, brings Stephen to give them the theology and to give them the seed, right? To move out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they actually do. Stephen's death, as as Julius reminded us of what Tertullian said, was the seed of the worldwide church. Not a thing was wasted in Stephen's life. Not a thing was wasted in his death. Every part of his life and death was invested with eternal significance because he's serving the eternal God. And friends, that's true of you. You want to have power to face life and death. Know that you're serving a God who's going to accomplish His purposes in your living and your dying. Your life will not be meaningless. Your death will be not meaningless. Friends, the world doesn't give you... It doesn't give your life meaning and significance. It really doesn't. It can't. The world's applause... Uh, doesn't um, establish you. The length of your life, the length of your days doesn't translate to significance or success. God and only God can give a man, a woman, a boy or a girl a truly significant, successful life. So, in the end, you and I can say with Paul, you know, Philippians 1, 20 and 21, we all have heard Philippians 1, 21, but we, we don't read Philippians 1, 20 as much. You can say this with Paul. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, 
Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the witness of Stephen. Father, give us the faith and the courage to... uh, to follow in your footsteps like Stephen did. And as we read and meditate on your word, Father, um, become more and more real to us so that the visible, visible world doesn't overwhelm us, uh, but that we march uh, to the drums uh, of the kingdom that we can't see now, uh, but that will, that will be forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.